0: Welcome to The Open Source Economist, a podcast about the new economy of free software powering our lives. Brought to you by Christy Chirinos, product manager and entrepreneur. There's a recurring theme here. New jobs. We've examined the ways that some open source jobs don't make sense to people. For example, running a commercial open source software company, or how one can grow a consulting company at scale. There's a lot we haven't even covered. For example, a digital experience platform has to have a support team. And that support team does not look the way that we might traditionally think about technical support. There's usually no call center, and there's no have you turned it off and then turn it back on again. Well, sometimes there is, but not that often. Even my job is a relatively new job. I have been working as a product strategist for open source content management systems and e-commerce. That type of work is a relatively recent development. Allie Nimmons, the co-producer and editor of this podcast, Hey, Allie! Hi, Christy! also had a pretty unusual job title on her resume community manager. That's a pretty unique job title to open source and often references to making sure that people outside of the company mobilize around a specific open source software project. Today we're exploring some of those new jobs, what the responsibilities are, who's hiring for them, at what rate, and what are the kind of skills that a person might need to get one of these open source jobs let's start with the developer evangelist an evangelist's job is to get other developers using the platform the open source software and building on top of it developer evangelism is new business work you're bringing people in new people and getting them excited about what the company is working for developers are tech savvy people so Traditional internet marketing and advertising isn't going to be that effective at getting your developers excited about what you're doing. Over 70% of developers have an ad blocker installed on their browser. That means that if you started selling to developers by buying ads, it's most likely not going to be that effective. Your developer evangelist is highly technical, and ready to answer questions and even build out examples using your open source product. The developer evangelists works very closely with the developer advocate. Now the developer advocate brings in existing users and makes sure that their voices are heard. As we've learned, open source is powered by its open source communities. Those communities are full of developers who are making the product better usually because an improvement made their lives easier and they believe in sharing it with others. Why reinvent the wheel, right? In that process, of course, developers form opinions about what should be, and those opinions can be really valuable to a company. The developer advocate's job is to listen closely, get involved with the community, and feed back a lot of that information to the commercial entities that may benefit from it. If I wanted to apply old structures of work to the developer evangelist and developer advocate roles, I might call them marketing and product management. However, that's not really what those are. In addition to the technical chops, our evangelists and advocates also have incredible public speaking skills, interpersonal skills, and they have a lot of knowledge about the open source communities that they're advocating for usually being contributors themselves. The community manager is a similar but slightly different role. Community managers focus on another space where developers often live, which is looking for content online. If you've ever talked to a developer, chances are that they'll tell you that half their job is Googling. After all, when we're building on top of each other, it's going to be really hard to know everything but it's a useful skill set to have to know how to find the answers. The thing is that to find the answers, the answers have to be online. And that's where a lot of community managers come in. They also keep their ears on the ground and they do that to make sure that the information the community is looking for is out there. That doesn't only mean web publishing, it also means groups. We're talking about communities and communities often interact with each other. Those interactions happen on social media, on forums, even in developer community slacks, which are quite common for a lot of open source projects. Someone has to be in there making sure that things are working. Also, you know the internet, so they also have to moderate. This is a role that, if I wanted to apply the old paradigm of work, I really couldn't. It's technical writing, but not... It's engineering knowledge, but not. It's a combination of the things that we need to make sure communities thrive. That actually used to be the realm of the nonprofit sector. And that's where open source's idealism starts to bleed into the business world. It's a curious market to watch. Then we have the role of full-time open source contributor. When companies highly leverage open source software, that can be a wonderful thing. There's often pressure to give back to the open source projects that a company is leveraging for revenue and profit. In addition to that, not to be cynical, but I am painting a lot of the open source economy with the brush of strategic management. And the way I would look at this would also be that leveraging open source software is a risk and there's easy way to mitigate risks. Make sure you have a seat at the table. There are job openings increasingly for full-time open source contributors. These are people that the company hires, sometimes we even say sponsors, to work on an open source project. The skill set needed here is obviously a developer and engineering skill set. But it has to be a little bit more than that because the developer needs to also understand the open source community in which they're operating in. Just like the developer advocacy and developer evangelism sections, oftentimes the people who get hired are already open source contributors. Finally, we can't have this discussion of definitions of open source software roles without discussing privacy. We're seeing an increasing number of privacy jobs prop up. This was especially accelerated by the General Data Protection Regulation in the European Union. One of the regulations is that companies must have data protection officers. There is a need for 7,000 data protection officers right now. That's across open source and proprietary software. But that number exceeds the number of people that exist in the world with the skill set required to be data protection officers. They have to understand the data regulations and also manage business risk and also understand technology. Then, of course, there's the challenge of figuring out where and how these people should work within a company. People want opportunities to grow and they want opportunities to increase their skills. This means that companies have to be aware of not only the definitions, but how they fit into the bigger picture. To explore this idea, I talked to Chelsea Simpson, who does work getting companies to make sure that teams are working in the best possible way. Chelsea is a part of the faculty at the New School in New York City, and she's also an old friend. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you teach at the New School, too?
1: Yeah, I teach a class. I've taught two classes, one called Creative Team Dynamics, and one uh, that's about uh, for students who are in a business design hybrid undergraduate program, what kinds of ways to not just have technical capacity, but also to manage and and, and lead and be part of a creative team, effective, And a class called Navigating the field just for graduating seniors.
0: Chelsea is doing the kind of work that I haven't seen discussed that often in the open source communities that I belong to. So I really wanted her take on the problems. Some of the key problems that... This faces is uh, one the community, the open source community style roles are poorly defined from issues of salary to issues of what the objectives are. And those things create some structural barriers, right? If there's no clear definition, it's really hard to get involved. So then you create this weird cycle of communities that look pretty homogeneous, and that doesn't build good software. You're lucky if you can get hired on just to contribute. Most people not, and they volunteer their time outside of it due to idealism, due to an understanding of how important the contribution is going to be, and then they burn out.
1: Yep, sounds about right.
0: Yeah. What are your initial reactions to that information?
1: Um, well, to be frank, it's not something that I'm really um, at all informed in, as far as the open source software um, reflection. However, it's sort of a metaphorical and industry, as uh, sort of uh, the global patterning level. As someone who's um, hired to talk about the future of work and consult about leadership in this like new work setting, it feels very familiar. Um, and so it's interesting to hear about that the ways that industries as we've known them and job descriptions as we've known them and ways of running organizations as we've known them are, I believe, in hospice and are sort of on their way out. Um, and whether and that's a very broad statement, but as far as even like, you know, we know that there's more and more this term is being reflected in the, in the, in the business world and um, my consulting practices is VUCA. They're volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And so, whether we're talking about the pandemic or whether we're talking about climate volatility or issues that borders the world over as income inequality and the kind of repercussions and consequences of long term colonialism, um, like where there's no more passing the buck for the next 10 years or 20 years or the next generation, it's like we're here. So, there's a reckoning that I believe is is subtle in some places and more extreme in other places. Um, whether it's Black Lives Matter in the U.S. or whether it's um, you know like socio-political turmoil that's happening in many places the world over, whether it's part of the pandemic or otherwise, um, those things I'm, I think are likely to get not less subtle but more
0: common. A reckoning. I found that to be remarkable language. In the past, here's how we thought about labor. Labor is another input for business. It is subject to the same economic powers than anything else. Supply and demand affect labor. And there are factors that influence how much labor costs, where it's available, and the rest of the things that we think about when we think about sourcing labor. Following classic economic laws, External factors big and small, like the availability of transportation or a war, will affect how much labor is available, and then that'll affect how much people expect to be paid. But when we're outlining that open source software doesn't necessarily have a tight grasp on its input costs, then that affects labor too. But all we have to do is look around us to realize that this isn't a problem specific to technology. We're seeing it across all industries. And I wonder if there are lessons for us to learn. From being invited into the internal workings of many
1: different large multinationals, as well as small community-based organizations in different countries, is that this is something that's a pattern happening everywhere. And so this need to reexamine how it is we're organizing ourselves and how we're organizing our labor, understanding what is actually what are actually the most essential parts in the organization, um, and how to become more transparent. It's definitely something that there's no clear answers to. It's not something that has a playbook, um, and so it requires something very different, which is being having more uh, having increased communication and emotional intelligence as not not uh, as necessary but not sufficient. So it's the prerequisite to get to the results in your own playbook and your own answers for your own industry or organization. And but um, having a high level of being able to communicate about what isn't working, um, where someone's role may not be a fit, where the responsibilities aren't equal to, you know, whatever the pay structure, these very complicated, very charged questions and conversations. We need to have the capacity and the, the upskilling to broach them. And the reality is most people don't have that upskilling at this
0: point. What is an example, if you can share, of how this similar dynamic is playing in a different industry? I wonder if we can draw some parallels.
1: Something something concrete might be um, like a product that's launching. Like, let's say it's like you know, an under like a, a period-proof underwear. <laughs> you know, like like a product that was uh, there was an organization that was selling those product in a place where where christy and i met um it's no longer just okay how do you get the contract with macy's right to have your product in this particular store it's how do you get people actually using them wearing them posting to instagram telling their friends coming to pop-ups like you know it's a whole different echelon i mean to have a community around your product and having people engaging with it with an emotional way um that is not the same as it has it was even 15 years ago and i for like the, the examples of some of consulting uh job that i did with the, with the big multinational it's like for them that the challenge can can show up as uh intergenerational sometimes and that um millennial or gen z employees needing more purpose and more and feeling like um some of the structures and, and job responsibilities and communication that worked for past generations aren't really—they're having a lot of retention issues um, because people need um, a sense of how this, what they do, contribute to the whole, and how they have a sense of purpose. And so I heard in saying that this, as, as an open-source community manager, mobilizing people around a purpose um, to do work that's for something bigger than them—that's something that I think is a commonality for in virtually all
0: industries right now. That sounded pretty familiar. And so that's when I wanted to dig into those solutions. I asked Chelsea to define creative team building.
1: I think at the core, I mean, that that phrase could be interpreted as like, you know, how do you build a team around a creative endeavor um, or a creative industry? But it could also be around the work to create is to, you know, be alive. Right, we're created from something, and to create this feeling, creative, is something that most people, if not all people, I think, of a human intrinsic need for people to feel like, even if someone, you know, loves a spreadsheet and loves a sense of, you know, clear structure and rigor, which is totally cool. There's nothing wrong with that. Creative and being being expressed in that they're able to feel like they have like um, like autonomy in their position, and they can connect the dots in a way that's meaningful to them. And their spirit of influence that are that are meaningful to them. And as a team, you're able to be um, be resilient and adaptable to what is and what occurs, and not um, confined to like a like a something that's just machinations that were predetermined and pre-structured because it's not functional anymore. There's too much there's too much GUKA for that to actually even be effective. So I think having a the kind of team that's able to be responsive to what actually occurs. Um, If you work from home, for example, this past year, you can figure out how to do that and adopt your team meeting structure and figure out how to create intimacy when people are home and maybe depressed and grappling with whatever they're grappling with. How do you reckon with systemic racism and have bold and scary and risky conversations about things that people have multi generational trauma around, you know, and challenges that are not over? And so, how do you broach that in a way that is sensitive to everybody's needs? um is no longer theoretical i think in many if not all workspaces there's some semblance of that of that reckoning that that is upon us and so a creative space a creative team must be one on which there's the capacity to pay attention and gauge and, and understand what's really there for people in the room what is it they need and how do we find um interesting and, and creative ways to do that so new ways of communicating um trying some experimental Um, you know, ways of having a meeting to elicit more um, almost like what's the word titrating, like titrating discomfort and, and um, to be able to consider how to build that muscle as a team. And how do we work with discomfort? How do we work with uncertainty? How do we work with ambiguity? How do we work with anxiety? How do we work with um, volatility?
0: I see these patterns in the work that I've been exposed to as a worker and a, leader of a company but hearing you describe it also makes me think these problems aren't new people have had these problems right so what have we been doing before
1: i mean my sense is my 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 personal you know little theory is that things were uncomfortable just uncomfortable just just functional enough just barely able to function well enough as was that and especially for 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 some people, that there was was just enough resistance or inertia to not look at it meaningfully. Um, And so, you know, there's always been some drop-off of people who went to find their path or start their own company or whatever, but my sense is in the last couple of years, the things that had been written as externalities or not a priority um, have become much more centered in everybody's experience. So whether you're wealthy, no matter, you know, no matter your race or class, Um, It's coming to your door and into your living room and into your kids' schools,
0: and it's a different conversation. Totally opinion-based, but I'm curious, what do you, as a human, think has brought about that societal shift in which we're no longer taking, well, I'll just suffer and tolerate and demand that. We prioritize these things that, you know, make our existences sad.
1: There's so many factors in, in um, consciousness, <laughs> so many factors in how people are connected to each other. My, I think social media and technology is a part of it that people have the sense of, even when I was a kid, um, you know, the idea of being going something from another country or going somewhere else is much more i think of the significance than or had less awareness of stories of other people the world over less of a sense of real connection and global identity um so that's that's part of it i think it's just the availability of different people's stories to feel to feel more connected to them and that there's reporting that's happening and so there's these things that are in our faces and not just relegated to a corner that isn't being covered by the media that isn't in our backyard and so there's less there's more responsibility just from having a look at it
0: call me biased but this is definitely something i can get down with the power of open source software and web publishing has spread ideas further and wider and this means that all of us are getting together and saying we want something different um
1: i think that's one thing and um I mean, part of it, I think, is that is the, the coming closer to the limits, like some of the, bi- the kind of biomechanical limits of, you know, um, the reality of, quote, unquote, the corporate job has really not been that long. It's been like two generations. And some, I feel like, you know, <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's and I sort of my sense is that, the met- if, you know, if I'm being really honest, there's a metaphor I think of that. Is a crisis right now because a lot of the farmland, which we've been using, um, you know, different kinds of uh, high, like chemical fertilizers to get a higher yield for crops, are now we've used those long enough where that high yield is no longer available, and we're about, we could hit a drop off point where the fertility of our soil is so low that it's effectively non non fertile because we've really depleted all of it, and we haven't been focused on how to make it regenerative. And I almost think the way that we work, we've sort of been depleting the fertility of people's like capacity.
0: I wanted Chelsea to paint a picture for me about what those mechanisms would be to create that reality. Especially when we talk about open source sustainability, it seems like that may not exist, but the solutions are hidden just below the surface. Purpose is one mechanism, paying them is a mechanism,
1: um, providing emotional community needs is a mechanism um providing a chance for them to get better and build skills and be educated as a mechanism of currency right but if, if we're not really considering how to make people people and their jobs regenerative in some way that is meaningful to what they need i don't think it's that the, just the, the boilerplate cut like um mechanism also frankly the things that once were like the reward for staying in a more um in a more predictable path are now like the, the benefits aren't there anymore. So you can go to law school and still not have a job and be and be profoundly in debt and not be able to afford to live in the city where you're working. You know, at one point that was sort of like, okay, you're guaranteed safety. And safety is a big deal. You're guaranteed safety and comfort if you make this, these decisions and invest in this way and show up to work in that way. And that can be okay for a lot of people. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. However, even the reward in that path is no longer as predictable. Right,
0: yeah, I... Have we might edit this out, but I have um, a, a friend who is reckoning with that right now in a really difficult way, and it's powering depression and anxiety for him because he went to pharmacy school, and pharmacy is the classic example, right? Of you're going to suffer through these four years, and you're going to be good for the rest of your life, and there are so many pharmacists that he has struggled to find a job, and. The job that he found had him traveling, get this, a radius of 150 miles. Yeah, but that's
1: not that's not a human design.
0: No, everything parallels with open source software. So let's zoom in. How can companies actually execute, right? So you kind of listed actually paying people more, education, purpose. So let's pick one of those and zoom in.
1: I think the idea is that there's, a, there's something that my friend who is a um a, a business executive also actually he's done a lot of he started a lot of open source software companies in his sixties and he says the only uh way viable business strategy left is doing the right thing. And I think there's something really solid about that because people at this point also with all of the data and stuff we have available online, we're really good at stepping out in and we're really good at um at, we have a, a pretty strong sense of the level and the unprecedented nature of the problems that we're navigating as a species right now and on the, in, the, in, the, in a global setting. And so if people can feel like they're able to become more equipped, even if it's not direct, they could be working in supply chain, you know, or with, you know, right in a healthcare industry. But if they feel as if they're learning things that are helping people, um, at best, not harming people at worst, and they're learning valuable skills and learning about themselves and able to grow as a person. So They have good support. They have a good manager. They have good feedback. They're growing, they're growing socially, emotionally, and they're invested in, in that way. I think that can go a really long way to providing a sense of purpose because people feel people are, there's, I think there's a really shocking level of, um, people who know that the tools we have aren't adequate. We know that we need to have more complex conversations. We know that we need to have better management and awareness of our triggers so we can have those complex conversations around race, class, you know, gender expression, sexual orientation, nationality, stuff that identity stuff that isn't easy. Um, and be able to build trust with diverse teams. And it's, it requires a lot of inner and inter work. So self-awareness, work, personal development, um, and and communication tools, you know. So I guess that was sort of a meandering way of answering your question. But as far as the purpose question, I think those are some of the ways that companies can, if they're willing to step, follow through on it and then really have it be have to be top down as well though, people from the top down have to model what that looks like and model themselves behaving and showcasing that this way of being as a as an organization, as a team really matters enough they will be vulnerable and they will be in it together with people, the the whole team over.
0: When Chelsea and I got to talking about diversity, that really came home for me because when it comes to the labor market, I have to participate. We all have to participate. And I've experienced the particular diversity challenges that Chelsea's talking about. I wanted to get her take on that too. Originally from Peru, I'm a Latina. I i am the daughter of a Japanese woman and a Peruvian man. So I'm mixed race and third country kid at the same time, right? Like it's a mesh. Um, uh, Spanish is my first language. Um, I grew up in a single parent household. There's so many things.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the deeper reckoning also comes from the fact that the way that organizations have been operating part of that operating system underneath all of the doing and the house, the time that's spent, how communication happens, how small talk happens, what is what the small talk entails it's based on a white dominant culture and centering a white experience. And it's like, just not really, I mean, I think we're really paying
0: attention. It's not really up for debate. The numbers trend tends to support that. A lot of companies are taking on initiatives to make sure that their workforce is doing okay. It's not only good humanity, it's also good business. One of the largest expenses for most companies is turnover. People quitting and looking for new jobs, and that's something that we've known way before we were talking about technology and open-source software. Um, there's a lot of hope. And I think even in
1: experiments that crash and fail, there's still a lot of data, right? There's still a lot of things that now we know how to do something better and more wisely. So, you know, I think that also comes back into the resilience and personal resilience. And how do how am I, if if I upset somebody, I didn't mean to, you know, how, how am I as a white person, if I say something that that is problematic to somebody or it hurts their feelings and I didn't know that that was going to be the case, but it is the case. How do I make space for that to all be present and available and not shut down or armor up? Um, how do I express myself if there's something, something that someone says that really hits a button for me and say like, "Hey, listen, like this is something that I, I, want, I, I, our trust is important to me, and this is something that I want to tell you because that, that it impacted me in this way and it could impact my trust in you moving forward." if I don't say it with you. You know, how do we have those scary conversations um, in an ongoing, consistent way and have cultures? that are equipping people to do that. And it requires some serious upskilling and it's totally possible and people do it. Um, but it requires being truly in it and having a top down and bottom up way to systematize
0: it. That's kind of the kind of training and consulting that I help people. I'm curious about that because I don't have a picture of what a successful diversity upskilling experiment looks like. And I have been hurt in the workplace before and I take a deep breath and keep moving because I have a career to uphold. Um, I'm curious, can you paint a picture about a successful experiment? What does that look, what would that be like, Chelsea?
1: Yeah. Well, I think having, this is part of where I'm really grateful to have done this training and coaching and business leaders at the Daniel Goldman emotional intelligence coaching certification program that, on some level, there's all these different ways in which it, it, it uh, there's all of these categories and, and conversations in the realm of emotional intelligence, but it's, it's um, a toolkit that includes self-management, self-awareness, um, communicate relationship awareness, um, organizational awareness, and relationship management. So there's lots of ways in which um, it's committing to a long-term practice. Um, that will be evocative and risk-taking, and have um, uh, an emotional arc in different moments, including connect- more connected than ever this is the best thing ever, or like fuck this, I hate it, I'm so tired of this bullshit. Like, it's walking into that territory on purpose um, through up- through saying like, hey, we're gonna have, you know, um, like the one company that I know, North Asian that I help sometimes, they have a weekly um, like. I think they call it something like equity and culture training and as a team they're prominently white but they they have it's a mixed team predominantly white they engage with current events and find different ways to look at it and talk about it and they then watch like for example there was you know like really there's been so many so many things like always recently but then these these really horrific um, AAPI attacks, they watched this three part series on PBS about history of Asian Americans in the United States, Watched those in their free time and then came together to talk about them reflect on it. One of the participants who's, who's Chinese um, and moved here a couple of years ago, she brought in her cousin and they talked about the process of learning English and how what they lost in their family from that from, you know, in that in, in that process and creating a space of like really vulnerable sharing. And they were able to have that need met um, of being seen and reflected by their coworkers and have, and have a chance themselves to have the time and energy. The reality is that working full time takes up so much bandwidth, that it's really hard to find that emotional space to do your own personal work if you don't have it built in. You know, people do it and it can be done, but it's definitely um, can be a great asset uh, if there's some mechanism to have that embedded in the team structure. And then, of course, that ripples into like, having new kinds of conversations with teammates and coworkers, and you learn more about each other, and then someone else is Samoan, and they didn't know that before, and they have a whole thing of they consider themselves a person of color, but haven't said it out loud before, you know, there's a whole ripple effect of conversations that are able to be had and explored around topics that for each person are ambiguous and confusing, let alone for them, so also for the team, and that are also charged and really sensitive. So the more you can find ways to give people like, okay, here's a ritual, here's a, some consistency, whether it's weekly or monthly or whatever. We have some um, up tooling around how we listen to each other. There's something I, I was hired to bring in was levels of listening. So like bring in like some, some toolkit around how do we actually noticing how we actually listen. Some guy from, named Otto Scharmer from MIT has something called Theory U. And it's a really beautiful like 10 minute video on YouTube that I often share. That's about these four levels of listening and just noticing how often we're listening at one level or another. And for most of us, myself included, who's been teaching this for years, you know, we're, it's, it's, it takes a lot of practice to be aware of where we're actually listening from and how often we're just ready to respond or armor up or be defensive or say the quickest possible thing. Um, and we don't really get meaningful possibilities from that. So it's not about it being bad or wrong to have times where we're on the go or we, we can't listen well, but it's just about knowing where we're at and being able to have that sense of workability. this is that's a kind of example of a kind of example of still in progress um, with one organization I know about.
0: I want to touch quickly and then we'll be done on uh, one of the uh, very hot button and I think emotional issues around people who work, people who work. period. Let's not even qualify that, which is the automation of jobs.
1: It, it, it's something that feels almost like a tidal wave to me that is like, if you're really paying attention, then you see the, the, the water going out and like you know, there's like some fists flopping around in the ground, but we haven't had the impact. Um, and I think they're in the next, whatever, 10 to 20 years or whatever the front time frame is, five to eight years, I'm not sure. I'm not on the front lines of that conversation at all. The thing at its core, as far as for organizations to equip their people with or for people who are you know job seekers or work, which is, <laughs> which is what I know, is is the art of reinvention and understanding that there is no getting around having to like where do we get where do we get triggered when we are faced with uncertainty? Um, this past year has been a great uh, education for us all, right to really get clear about how do we show up? Do we shut down? We should start like holding away and eating ice cream and stop moving our bodies. Do we go back and be with our parents? Nothing, none of this is wrong. I'm just being like, how do we really get sober or frank? Like how do we get when we're faced with immense uncertainty? My sense is that what's the fit, safe thing to invest in is knowing like, how do I prepare myself to be able to, to know that I can reinvent and learn how to have the, um, you know, like the nervous, being able to adapt my nervous system, you know, like, like really work with my own, physical, the nervous system, um, and keep my sense of how the tools and skills I'm building. Once again, we highlight investing in your people. Keep understanding how they look in different industries. Um, how do we, as industry silos, break down? You know, like as it's not just people in education or people in healthcare anymore. It's like there's more and more hybrid new jobs, new new names, new careers, I'm guessing the job that I might have in 10 years, I don't, I don't even know the name of it right now. Right? It, may, it may not even exist yet. Um, so how do I make myself as a human being have, a, have the emotional resilience to
0: deal with that? Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Change is the only constant, right? In the process of talking to Chelsea, I let go of my small obsession with defining the labor market and... I got a lot more interested in how we cultivate a sense of comfort with uncertainty. Yes, we have new jobs in the open source software environment and we see new jobs continue to crop up as we understand how to manage and exist within these communities. Sometimes examining questions brings up more questions. And that's a powerful thing. And I'm looking forward to where it leads. Uh, Chelsea, this was awesome. Uh, can you tell us where listeners can find you and your work? Yeah. Find me on LinkedIn. My name is Chelsea Simpson.
1: And um, my uh, organization website is emergingleaders.us. And yeah, this is the best place to find me. Or you can email me. It's tochelsea, Chelsea T O Chelsea at gmail.com.
0: Thank you for listening. Learn how to support the Open Source Economist at opensourceeconomist.com. Even a monthly $5 contribution helps and gets you access to full, unedited interviews with our guests. This podcast was edited by Ali Nimitz. Thank you to Alice Young for creating our designs and to Chris Lemma for supporting our publishing costs. And of course, thank you to our individual contributors for helping us create this podcast. Have questions or feedback? Send them to email at christychirinos.com.